We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you found $100 on the street, would you pick it up or keep walking? Of course you take the money. So why do you keep picking winners and not betting on them? That's why I go to my bookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay when you win. Let's face it, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. Do the smart thing. If you're going to bet this football season, bet with my bookie. Did you know you can bet on games after kickoff? If by the second half it looks like your bet is going to lose, you can always just take the other side. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. And no matter how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of the year. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use promo code BLUEWIRE for this offer. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. Make sure to visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. Hello and welcome to the Esports Biz Show. This is episode one on prediction. This is Justin Jacobson, an entertainment and esports attorney in New York City. So this episode is on immigration and visa and esports, and we're proud to have our first guest, Pavel Velez, who's an immigration attorney at Velez and Cipriani with offices in New York City. Pablo handles visas and immigration matters on behalf of talent and businesses, including musicians, DJs, and professional esports talent. So just for all the viewers out there, you know, this is nothing here is intended as legal advice. It's really just, you know, informative conversation for you to learn a little bit. So visas and immigration and esports. If you're a foreign citizen who wants to come into the country, into the US, in order to, you know, earn an income receive a salary, participate in a competitive league or tournament for prize money, you need to receive work authorization, which is commonly known as a visa. 
this pretty much is if you're European coming to compete in the U.S. tournament or from anywhere else around the, the world. So, you know, visas and what's going on in immigration has been a real big issue within the esports and what's been going on recently. There have been instances of players not being able to come and start with their team on time, entire teams not being able to participate in tournaments because they couldn't get their paperwork in on time, and just numerous issues that have arisen, which are pretty clearly easily avoidable and are things that we need to kind of learn about. So, you know, there's no minimum or maximum age for a visa. So if you're a minor, if you're a 16 or 17-year-old pro gamer or aspiring pro gamer and you want to come over to the U.S. to compete in tournaments or be signed to an organization and receive a salary from them, you would need to get this visa. Um, so, you know, the most common visas that a, a town or an individual applies for is either an O-1 or a P-1. So for the last couple of years, dating back to... You know, 2013 was the first pro gamer esports visa issued. This was issued to a League of Legends player and was surely followed up by a StarCraft II pro. So, you know, there's definitely become a new evolution of providing these kind of visas for professional gamers. Um, so, Pablo, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the visa process and what kind of goes into it. Well, Justin, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, just to uh, summarize a little bit in the four different points, the most common visas for any sports player. So we're talking about the B1 tourist visa, which applies for people who are coming in specifically for a limited tournament. Then you've got the same uh, with ESTA, which is for people from countries that participate under what's called the visa waiver program. So these are folks who don't need the tourist visa because the U.S. can, uh, U.S. citizens and their citizens, we could travel to each other's countries for 90 days at a time uh, to perform those same functions. So again, these two categories are only for very limited tournament exceptions where they're only going to take a portion of the prize money one and also a small stipend while they're here and again 90 days is the limit on that uh six days of its or six months of its tourist visa uh but these are just for tournament exceptions now if a player is actually going to be involved and working for a u.s team they're going to either want to opt for the o1 or the p1a visas now the o1 visa is for a player that has extraordinary ability so this is going to be an athlete that's absolutely the top of their game. And all of this is basically based on their renown. And so also what are some examples, you know, that. So, for instance, you know, you have players that are so recognizable, like Ninja, for instance. Like when you have a name that large and in, in individual level, like those are the kinds of players that rise to the 01. They're at the top of their game, they're widely known in the media. They're top ranked in their different game that they're participating in, and they compete as individuals. Now, the P1A is for athletes that compete either as individuals or on a team, but the standard is a lot lower in the sense that they don't have to be, you know, one of the top players in the world necessarily. The uh, key phrase here is that they're internationally recognized. So basically what that means is that you know, they're internationally recognized because they're ranked either in their home country because they compete internationally on national teams or they've competed in international tournaments 
and possibly in the U.S. before in a tournament capacity. Okay, so you know, tell us a little bit more on kind of what's necessary to you know submit and potentially obtain one of these P1 visas that you're. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first off, uh, what you want to do is make sure that you have a contract with a professional esports team. So in this contract, they will be bringing you over for a definite period of time. If you're an individual competitor, you can get up to five years if a team can support that kind of an engagement with you. Uh, but typically what's more common is that these are for team players which are uh, limited to tournaments up to one year. And during this time, it doesn't always have to be active competition. There's also an exception for things like press tours and practice to a certain degree, but a well-outlined itinerary is necessary to get that visa through. Yeah, so I mean, tell us a little bit you know, more about the process. If you wanted to obtain a visa, kind of how do you go about it? Well, the first thing I would definitely recommend once any sports athlete has been engaged by a U.S. team, uh, that U.S. team should contact an attorney who's familiar with the USCIS regulations. And the kinds of documents that they'll be providing for these uh, attorneys to make the filing are contracts between the teams and the players. You're also going to want to have evidence that this individual is internationally recognized. So we're talking about the stats that they've accumulated over the course of their mm -hmm. professional career. You also want to make sure that you have an invitation letter from the league or the uh, game developer themselves uh, inviting this particular player onto the tournament or at least recognizing that they will participate. And then you're going to want uh, mostly evidence such as reference letters from the league uh, speaking to the international renown of this player or uh, people high up in the esports community, whether they be team owners or people in esports media. So how do you kind of obtain some of this, you know, this documentation and evidence of, you know, the level you've reached? So a lot of it is based on uh, different rankings. So, for instance, uh, different esports rankings with respect to uh, the amount of salary or the amount of tournament winnings that a player has. You also want to look at different player statistics with respect to specific games. So, you know, if we're talking about games that use kills, for instance, and mm -hmm. rank players based on that. Uh, any any website that can basically attest to the amount that you have compared to other players in the league uh, will suffice. Okay, yeah. So, you know, you want to look for you know, your placement on a ladder or how well you place within a tournament. You know, if you're placing in the top one or two positions consistently in tournaments, this could really, especially international ones, can really help justify the level that you've realized. Um, so who would you kind of reach out to to obtain some of this evidence to demonstrate the level you've reached at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is to reach out to either the game developer or the organization that's running the specific league in the U.S. to obtain that letter. So, so like you the can... MLGs of the world, the Dream Hacks, the tournament organizer. Correct. Okay. So Correct. that. So you have to really, as if you're applying for a visa, you have to really interact with the team owners. You have to interact with the tournament organizers, sometimes the developers, and you have to really use this kind of team effort in order to substantiate the level 
of notoriety that this player has obtained. That's correct. And these are going to be your foundational relationships to be able to provide that kind of information. And then outside of that, it really strengthens the case if you have people in, for instance, the esports uh, journalism community that can write about your accomplishments as an athlete, uh, you know, whether internationally or if it was a U.S. based tournament. So like, you know, letters of recommendation from esports journalists and press and pretty much people that are covering what's going on in the industry on a day to day basis. Exactly. That's correct. OK, great. So, yeah, so you prepare this application, you gather all this evidence, and then you submit it. What kind of happens next? So once a package is put together and immigration's reviewing it, uh, they typically, for O's and P's at this moment, it could range anywhere between three weeks to three months, realistically. So, you know, what we would say is if you have a very short time frame and you have to make sure that a player can get to the U.S. and have their visa in on time to exercise what they call the premium processing option. And this is basically an additional fee that the government charges in order to expedite the visa and approve it within 14 business days. Okay, so you're saying that, you know, this additional premium fee really kind of speeds up the whole process. Exactly. And, you know, given the short time uh, frames that teams are usually looking at when they're interacting with these players and deciding to onboard and actually going through the logistics, it's probably more likely than not that they'll have to exercise that. Okay, so, you know, after you submit it, what can kind of happen next? What's like the next play? So two things happen, uh, or it could potentially happen. First off is a petition can be uh, approved off the bat, or what typically happens as well is the USCIS will issue what's called a request for evidence or an RFE, and they'll actually make specific requests based on what was already submitted or what was lacking in the file. So what does that mean? What 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 kind of is an RFE? That, that sounds like one of those things you want to avoid at all costs. Yeah, I mean, what you really want to do when you f initially file the petition is make sure to include as much evidence in there as you can to make, you know, basically hit those prongs. Uh, but if an RFE does arise, again, it's usually the attorney who is going to be leading the way in terms of being able to explain exactly what uh, immigration is looking for. And you just want to be prepared to be able to document things in a very detailed way. And how does that kind of affect the timeline? I know that you mentioned if you use premium processing, it kind of gives you an answer and you're able to move things forward than proceeding without it. Exactly. So the benefit of using premium processing is that because they take 14 days to process the case, if they do issue a request for evidence, it does delay things, but they will process that request for evidence again within 14 days. Whereas if you don't use it, then if you're issued a request for evidence, it's very possible that it could take the maximum amount of time for you to hear back on the Wait. response to the request for evidence, which could be an additional three months. Wow. So the difference between going the premium route and getting an answer two weeks later versus three months is, you know, difference between the player missing the tournament and, you know, not, it seems. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There are countless ways to keep up on what's happening in the world of sports. But how are you supposed to read every great article? How are you supposed to watch every awesome highlight without losing time in your busy day? Scrolling through every app and visiting every website on a daily basis is impossible. 
now coming to the stage, Axios Sports. Axios Sports is our modern sports page delivered directly to your email inbox. Each morning, you'll see the best stories from around the sports world, from the NBA, NFL, to niche sports like cricket and ping pong. The email newsletter highlights the most important stats and trends, giving you the ability to stay informed. It's super simple to sign up. Just go to sports.axios.com. Axios Sports is a clean, crisp, and gives you everything you need to know. Read it in five minutes in the elevator or discover a deep dive article while you're on the train to work. Not only will you be caught up, you'll be the person sharing an amazing link with your friends and coworkers. Join the 100,000 sports fans who get caught up on the day before it even begins. Best of all, there's no paywall, no subscription fee, nothing. This is free curated sports content delivered directly to you. Do yourself and your time a favor. Sign up for the Axios Sports Newsletter for free at sports.axios.com. Seriously, I subscribe to it and it makes me feel more informed without spending time clicking through websites, apps, and social media platforms. Again, try it for free 99 at sports.axios.com. Um, so yeah, so you submit it, you get the FRE, you answer it. Now you get to the next step where you actually get approved with the visa. What, what do you do now that you have this document in hand? So once you get approved for a visa uh, by USCIS, they issue what's called an I-797 notice of approval that will actually state the time frame that you're that you're approved for. So what you do is you take this document and you make an appointment at your local embassy or consulate, and you're going to submit that as well as some additional information electronically and attend a physical interview with a State Department officer who will ask you several questions and then approve the visa to be placed inside your passport within seven to 10 business days. So you get this visa and then you have to go to the consulate or embassy to have another in-person interview. So that's kind of as in all this extra time, how, how, like, what's like the turnaround? Are you able to get the visa one day and schedule the consulate that day or the next day? It really depends. I mean, typically they'll issue the visa in your passport within seven to 10 business days. A lot of, or I would say most uh, embassies consulates actually offer uh, an expediting service mm-hmm. where you can you know, pay something in addition, or you make an emergency request based on the fact that, you know, it'll, it'll cause severe economic loss if you're not issued this visa in time. Uh, so they can expedite things along for you. But you really should just pad on an extra uh, two weeks just to be safe. Okay, so this consulate is, it's just kind of like a very intimate in person interview, they ask you a bunch of questions. Or is it, you know, a lot more detailed? It's pretty straightforward for esports athletes, uh, mostly because of the nature of the visa itself. Uh, There isn't a lot that they're trying to figure out that they don't already have in their file. Uh, But what they're mostly basing uh, their decision on are the security questions. And they also want to take a look and see if you've ever worked in the United States unauthorized, which is definitely a big no-no and you want to avoid that so yeah so that leads to kind of my next question what happens if you know you don't want you don't have the time or you don't want to spend the cost in to incur and to actually get a visa what could happen if you were just to come in and say you're just a tourist or you know some other kind of classification 
So again, uh, there is a tournament exception. It's very limited, and basically it allows you to come in for a very limited period of time to compete in a tournament and only take uh, you know, earnings based on tournament prize pool. Uh, but it does not allow you to draw salary in the United States or, in other words, engage in labor here. So the consequences of doing that or violating your status could mean that if you're caught, you could be deemed inadmissible to come into the U.S. And then next time you try to apply for a visa, you have to apply with a waiver. And what does that mean? You're inadmissible. You can't come back ever? Well, you can't you can't come back based on what kind of visa you have. So, for instance, if you have ESTA and you're found in violation of status, you can no longer use ESTA. You have to apply for another kind of a visa. If you're from a country that doesn't have ESTA and you have a tourist visa and then that gets revoked, then you can either apply for another one with a waiver or you'll have to try to apply for the proper work visa. And again, if If you're not working, then it's not applicable. And if the violation, for instance, uh, deems you inadmissible, then you would probably have to file a waiver with that work visa anyway. And how does that work? That just, you know, the whole waiver process. So a waiver is actually filed right at the consulate uh, with your documentation. So once you actually apply for the visa and are approved here uh, on the immigration side here in the U.S., an individual goes to the consulate or the embassy and alongside their petition, they also file what's called a waiver, which is basically an explanation of everything that they've been found to have violated in the law. And then there's sort of a weighing analysis where you look at the severity of the offense, the offense, uh, whether this person has, you know, sufficiently uh, recouped or, you know, whether they're likely to do it again Mm -hmm. and if there's a compelling interest for them to come back into the U.S. And that's totally at the officer's discretion. So it's not really a position that you want to be in if you can avoid it. So, yeah. So if, you know, you try to go through this process and you don't use the visa process and come in some other way, this could potentially jeopardize you and really increase your cost long term. That's correct. So, you know, what, what I would advise is really speaking to an attorney before taking any steps just to have a plan in place in terms of how much involvement you're going to have in actual play here in the U.S. and what the appropriate visas are. So what are some of the biggest you know issues in immigration and esports? What are some of the stuff you've been encountering? Uh, some of the biggest are probably just um, proving the legitimacy of the league with respect to immigration requirements because immigration looks at pro leagues and it's it's a really limited uh, sort of interpretation, but they categorize them uh, by leagues that have at least six professional teams and the league itself has to show $10 million in revenue uh, annually at least. So because a lot of these leagues are brand new and a lot of these leagues are privately held companies, they tend to not be very liberal with respect to sharing any of their financial information. So that could always be uh, an issue. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense that, you know, the, these new franchise leagues, like the new Call of Duty one that's emerging and some of these other Rainbow Six Pro League, there's not really a track record of, you know, press prize pools, what viewership numbers, what the metrics are like. So it, you know, could definitely create some hurdles. Correct. And, you know, really the only way to overcome that is to show circumstantial evidence. So, for instance, the league may not 
release their own numbers in terms of revenue and those kinds of things. But, you know, you really just have to lean on what you can, which are maybe uh, reports, public reports of any partnerships that they've had with any sponsors uh, showing the teams themselves and their particular revenue or their particular investment raises. So there's, you know, ways of showing it without directly showing it. But again, uh, immigration's becoming very tough with respect to proving the standard. Yeah, so I mean, it definitely sounds like, you know, this is a hurdle, but by kind of focusing on some of the abstract things, like you said, the teams that are participating, what kind of sponsorship and brand partnerships the league has entered into, some of the individual organizations can hopefully kind of quantify the legitimacy and the international recognition of these leagues, even if they don't have this long established track record that, you know, an NFL or an NBA franchise might have. Exactly. And this is a really new league. I mean, in in terms of just being a sport in general in the U S being recognized, it's just brand new and immigration is usually a little bit late to the game with respect to how they, uh, how they interpret things. So a lot of it has to do with, explaining the evidence and over explaining the evidence and just showing how it's analogous to things that they are familiar with. Um, but you know, not as straightforward as what their ask is, but just making that analogous comparison and seeing if, you know, they're able to accept that. So would you say like if esports was included in the Olympics, would you say that that would you know be very beneficial to the process? Oh, it'd absolutely be beneficial. Uh, but again, like one of the biggest hurdles is uh, showing that you're a major league sport under, you know, their specific definition. So really um, what it's going to come down to, I think, is probably just esports becoming a little bit more established and maybe even getting the point that it's publicly traded or at least they're a little bit more comfortable with, um, you know, releasing certain financial figures to the press. So that's easily available. Okay. So, you know, it definitely sounds like, you know, esports is developing in the last few years you know the first pro esports visa was only issued in 2013 so really only talking about six years for any case law or any kind of practices to be developed oh absolutely i mean it's still really like the wild wild west with respect to esports uh, <laughs> filings and you know it's really just about dealing with individual clients and individual teams and going on uh on a case-by-case basis and just, you know, kind of seeing what works, what doesn't, and persevering through it. Right, and trying to see if the government wants to help us work with us and, you know, wants to learn about esports as this continues to grow. Um, so, yeah, so in addition to the immigration, recently there's been some huge changes in Japan and their esports scene. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, there was new legislation passed that permitted now permits Japanese citizens to compete in competitive gaming tournaments in Japan and elsewhere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Japanese, the Japanese government had a lot of anti-gambling legislation on the books that prevented esports tournaments from even happening because of the concept of the prize pool. And uh, they, they did repeal this in early 2018. And now a lot of the uh, Japanese game developers and when, you know, we're talking about video games, Japan's one of the top producers in the world. Uh, Now they're actually entering the market and a lot of these uh, companies have gotten together and formed the Japanese esports union. 
So, so what is that? What what's going on over there? So this group is actually able to um, provide professional licenses for players, for teams, and also uh, for tournaments to actually happen. So okay. that means that these individuals can compete for money. Okay, so if you want to, you know, be a professional gamer and participate in competitions in Japan, you need to obtain one of these licenses. Exactly, exactly. So the best thing to do is to contact that organization. And I'm sure, you know, even with the 2020 games uh, being in Tokyo next year, uh, they're they're actually slated to have uh, an exhibition at the games, uh, which is really interesting. So I think that's going to further expose the world to uh, Japanese esports and, you know, hopefully jumpstart their uh, participation. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a huge market that you know, they've always been big in Street Fighter and fighting games, but they haven't really been kind of part of the ecosystem. Korea and, you know, China have really dominated a lot of the esports, and it'll be really interesting to see, you know, kind of how Japan steps up to the plate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, just given the broad scale of all the production and interest there, uh, they'll quickly gain market share. Awesome. Yeah, so, you know, guys, as we've said this is a very important thing. You know, visas and proper work authorization. You know, you should not be engaging in work and trying to come in and compete in these leagues and tournaments without handling this. You know, at the end of the day, you know, every person's situation is different. And you should definitely consult, you know, your own counsel or attorney or representative so that you do the right thing. Because it sounds like the repercussions of not doing the right things, you know, can really have long-term ramifications. You know, you could be prevented from coming in and participating again, especially if it seems like, you know, it was a very egregious, you know, if you try to do it for a long period of time and, you know, just, you know, we're a little shifty about it. So, you know, I think that it's important for, you know, professional gamers, aspiring gamers, team owners, you know, everyone that's involved in the ecosystem to just be aware of the need for this as well as the time process. Like, you can't just submit it two weeks before a tournament and expect it to happen. You know, that's really setting the team and the organization up for a potential issue. And as we've seen with, you know, the Shanghai Dragons and 100 Thieves, these issues are actually impacting teams on the highest level. So, you know, Pablo, thank you so much for coming by. You know, you brought a lot of wisdom. I hope the viewers, you know, learn something. So, you know, tell them where they can find you. Excellent. Thanks for having me. So you can find us right here in Midtown Manhattan, and you can find us on the web, www.velsip.com. Awesome, awesome. And, you know, if you have any questions for me or Pablo, feel free to, you know, shoot them in the chat. We'll definitely be, you know, around taking them. And, you know, follow me on Twitter, JustinJESQ. Check out jacobsonfirm.com. Make sure you check out Prediction. We have a bunch of podcasts on Apple Music. This will be available there as well. So come back and get ready for the next installment soon. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.